So today's sermon is going to be a sermon of stories, each one of which will contribute to the larger whole. The first story begins in the small town of Northampton, Massachusetts, where I lived and worked before attending seminary. In one of the many different jobs that I held during college and after, I worked the night shift at a convenience store called Grampy's. Now, Grampy's was a small independent store. It probably looks a lot like a holiday store does here, but independent and super local. We sold beer and cigarettes, chips and gas, and all kinds of different odds and ends there. I signed up to work the night shift, 10 p.m. to 8 a.m., because it fit perfectly with my schedule. I thought, well, this is perfect, right? It left me free for my classes during the day and studying at night, and, well, I was awake most of the time anyway. I was 21. This would work out great. So the reality of what it meant to work alone on the overnight shift for a young 21-year-old woman came home really the first night that I worked by myself. It was, like I said, my first night working there alone, And things were going pretty well. You know, folks were coming in for the different things they needed. I was managing the gas pumps and the deli and the register. And for the most part, it was quiet aside from the post-bar rush that happened a little after 2. And it was probably about 3 a.m. that first night when a car came pulling into the parking lot and never stopped. It went right through the plate glass window to my left and came to rest finally in the cat food and the sewing sundries aisle there. I was stunned, to say the least. And I went over and I checked on the driver and he was fine, though more than a little intoxicated. I sat him down, I called the police and I got a broom to start sweeping up all of the broken glass and the bits that were everywhere. I found some old buckets and mops to kind of rope off the area, and then I went to the door to lock it, to say, hey, we're going to be closed for a little while. But it was a 24-hour store, right? And it never dawned on me that there was actually no lock on the front door. The store was never closed, and the lock was simply not there. There was no way to close the shop and say, hey, I won't be here for a little while, we're going to work this out. So I put up signs, and it seemed pretty clear that the place was broken, but still, people kept coming in all night long, demanding their cigarettes and their gas and all kinds of things. And it dawned on me that really all I could do was make sure that folks were safe, clean up the mess as best as I could, and keep things running. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a car come through the window of your house or your business. Maybe you haven't. But I'm guessing that you may have had an experience that felt similar, even if it wasn't quite that dramatic. A moment when the world literally came crashing down around you. When the glass shattered, and yet, the world kept turning. I remember learning this when I was about 12 years old, and I found out that my grandmother had died. The next morning, I was absolutely shocked when the sun came up and then at the end of the day when the sun went down again. I remember feeling both angry about this and comforted all at the same time. How is it possible that the world could keep turning when somebody so important was gone? How was it that other kids were getting up and catching the bus and worrying about their homework and their hair when my grandmother wasn't here anymore? It didn't make any sense to me. It didn't seem right. 
Couldn't the world just stop for a moment to recognize this big change that had happened? But it didn't. The world didn't stop. The sun didn't stop going up and coming down, and it doesn't. We pause, hopefully. If we are wise, we pause to recognize those big moments when things shift like that. We pause to honor and remember those who have died, to mark the changes that come our way for good or for bad. We pause to welcome the birth of a child or mourn the death of a loved one. We pause and take notice at the beginning and at the end of a relationship, of a job, of a career. We pause, I hope, when we make that important turn away from addiction and toward recovery, or when something happens and we are falling back into illness. We pause, I hope, when our country makes a decision to go to war or when we lose a leader, when our politics take a turn that is dangerous and divisive. We pause, I hope, and pay attention. But the earth doesn't pause and life doesn't stop, no matter what is going on for us as individuals. Sometimes things break in absolutely shocking ways, and still nothing stops. Life will go on. And I think it can feel like an insult sometimes, and sometimes it feels like a gift, or maybe both all at once. But regardless of how we feel about this fact that things keep on moving, there it is. People keep streaming into the store no matter what we put up, They're asking for their milk and their diapers, and the sun is going up and going down, and life keeps going on, whatever is happening for us as individuals. Over the years, I've come to see this reality as both a challenge and as a gift. The river doesn't stop, but inside the river, as the poet said, there is an unfinishable story, and you are somewhere in it, and it never ends until all ends. There's a comfort, I think, and a deep truth in knowing that our lives and the lives of those that we care about, they're so much bigger than any single moment. We're all a part of something bigger than each of us as individuals. There's a story that is being written. It's a story that spans backwards generations long before us to people we have never known and it spans out in front of us to generations we will never see. This arc. And this brings me to my next story. Now, some of you have heard this before. It's one of my favorites, and I'll warn you, you'll probably hear it a lot during the course of my ministry. It comes from the African-American preacher and writer, Dr. Howard Thurman. Dr. Thurman lived from 1899 to 1981. And in the 1930s, he traveled to India, where he learned from the great civil rights leader and spiritual teacher, Mahatma Gandhi. Dr. Thurman brought what he learned there back to the United States and back to the heart of the African-American civil rights movement. He was an absolute powerhouse of a person. And here's one of the stories he tells. He says, I watched him for a long time. He was so busily engaged in his task that he did not notice my approach until he heard my voice. Then he raised himself up with all the slow dignity of a man who had exhausted the cup of haste to the very dregs. He was an old man, as I discovered before our conversation was over a full 81 years. 
Further talk between us revealed that he was planting a small grove of pecan trees. The little treelets were not more than two and a half or three feet in height, and my curiosity in watching him was unbounded. Why didn't you select larger trees so as to increase the possibility of you living to see them bear at least one cup of nuts? He fixed his eyes directly on my face with no particular point of focus, but with a gaze that took in the totality of my features. Finally, he said, these small trees are cheaper and I don't have much money. So you don't expect to live to see the trees reach sufficient maturity to bear fruit, I asked him. No, but is that important? All my life, I have eaten fruit from trees I did not plant. Why should I not plant trees to bear fruit for those who may enjoy them long after I am gone? Besides, the one who plants to reap the harvest has no faith in life. The fact is that much of life is made up of reaping where we have not sown and planting where we shall never reap. All my life, I have eaten fruit from trees I did not plant. So much of life is made up of reaping where we have not sown and planting where we shall never reap. Now we know this is true. We know this is true for both the good and the bad that we are inheritors of. We know that we did not plant the seeds of the systems that impact all of us. None of us were the ones who started racism or sexism or homophobia. None of us invented the limiting binary system of gender that we have all inherited. None of us began the destruction of the planet or found fossil fuels or created capitalism or fascism. We didn't choose the bodies or the families that we were born into or the experiences of the communities of our larger family that shaped us long before we were born. Yet these are the trees from which our fruit is born. We weren't the ones out there creating the art of the Renaissance or the music of the Grateful Dead or Beyonce or Beethoven or Billie Holiday. We didn't figure out penicillin or zippers or discover chocolate, couldn't live without that, or fire. And still here we are, all our lives, as Dr. Thurman says, eating fruit from trees we did not plant, reaping where we have not sown, planting where we shall never reap. We are all the inheritors of history, both great and gruesome. We are all planting seeds that we will not see grow into maturity. I think that life and living can feel absolutely overwhelming when we think that we are responsible for everything, when we forget that we are a part of something so much bigger than ourselves. We have things to do, work to do, absolutely, a part to play. But there is also a longer arc, an unfinished story. And it is dangerous, I think, to miss that bigger picture, the web of interconnection of which we are a part, the community and the river of life that offers redemption and reconciliation, that shows us the larger shape of things beneath and beyond the brokenness of any single moment. And this brings me to my last story. This story comes from my time serving as the associate minister in our congregation in Rochester, New York. 
And the story begins just after I delivered my very first sermon there. It was actually my first sermon anywhere as a settled minister, so it was kind of a big deal to me, even if it might not have been to anybody else. I'll never forget how tremendously nervous I was that day when I got up to speak in the pulpit, and I was so grateful when the service was over and I had survived and it all seemed to have gone basically well, and I was standing there in the line like we do, shaking hands after the service, smiling. There were the obligatory, you know, nice job, welcome, we're glad you're here. But I could see that there was an older man waiting, kind of standing off to the side, waiting until everybody had gone through the line. And after everyone was gone, he came over and he took my hand and he leaned in and he just whispered in my ear. And he said, I have one word for you, young lady. Practice. And then he walked off. (laughs) Now, this was a hard word to hear, no doubt. And I'll admit that for a long time, I carried that story around with me. And I would take it out at collegial gatherings with other ministers. And I would say, listen to this. And I'd get that aw sound I got from you. But over time, I began to see it a little bit differently. The thing is, that gentleman was right. And so I decided that I would take his word in that spirit, and I would practice. And over the years, he and I had many, many conversations, some joking, some quite serious. And when the day came that I announced that I was going to be leaving that church to come here, there he was again, waiting off to the side at the end of the line after that service. And this time, after everybody was gone, He took my hand in his, and he whispered something quite different. He said, we've come a long way, you and I. You more than me. (laughs) I love this guy so much. (laughs) It was less than a month later, while I was still there in Rochester, when I found myself delivering his eulogy. And that affirmation that he gave me, those kind words that were spoken at the end of the line, the evolution of our relationship, meant the world to me. In community, I think we receive gifts that are so much bigger than any of the fancy awards or outside honors that we might go looking for. In community, we have relationships that last over time. We mess up. We try to do better. We miss the mark, we heal, we forgive, we practice, we learn. And if we're still in it together, we witness that for each other. We see those changes big and small and we know what they mean. And we know, I think, we learn from those moments that real life redemption and reconciliation are actually possible. It doesn't always happen, of course. That relationship with that man, so many moments in our lives could have gone totally differently. It doesn't always happen. And it sure doesn't always happen in the moment. But I believe that reconciliation and redemption and wholeness are possible over time in community. So I keep a lookout. Whenever the glass shatters in my life or yours or somewhere in the world, Of course, we sweep up the glass, but then I start to keep a lookout. 
how might it happen this time? Maybe with different people in different places at a different time, how will reconciliation and redemption and wholeness happen? What will it look like? I see it over and over. I see those who have experienced incredible loss bringing their steady gaze of love to those who need to be seen. I see relationships that couldn't be repaired with parents being repaired through parenting. I see people who have been beaten down for years, holding an inner strength of their ancestors and a drive for a different life for themselves and the next generation. I see those who have benefited for years from systems of oppression turning and shining a light on injustice and intentionally following the lead of those who have been oppressed. I keep a lookout for reconciliation and redemption because I know that life is a more powerful force than any one individual or moment, and I know that we are a part of a river that never ends until it all ends. So when the glass shatters around you or me, I will put my faith in the river, in the long haul, in the arc of justice, in the planting of trees we will not live to see grow into maturity, but which will be bearing fruit all the same. We know that in so many ways it is already broken, and yet life continues on, whether the rising and setting of the sun feel like a gift or an insult on a particular day. The river is flowing on with our story inside of it. There is a larger shape of things that we are a part of, as we eat from trees we did not plant, as we sow the seeds we will never reap. It's not always possible to see that larger shape of things in the moment, but in community, in time, it is there, carrying us, holding us, I believe, as that love that will not let us go. The rhythms of the earth and the flowing of the river reveal the true shape of things. What can I say that I have not said before? The poet writes. So I'll say it again. The leaf has a song in it. Stone is the face of patience. Inside the river, there is an unfinishable story, and you are somewhere in it, and it will never end until all ends. Take your busy heart to the art museum and the chamber of commerce but take it also to the forest. The song you heard singing in the leaf when you were a child is singing still. I am of years lived so far, 74, and the leaf is singing still. May the leaf keep singing for you. And may we all know ourselves as a part of inside this river and this unfinishable story. May it be so, and amen.